podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Monday, the 23rd of October. Hope you're all well and had a pleasant weekend. Uh, congratulations to all South African and Kiwi listeners on your teams advancing to the World Cup final in the 2023 Rugby World Cup to be played next Saturday, or just on Saturday, I suppose, because it's the coming Saturday. Uh, should be a great game, and I'm very much looking forward to it. But I will point out that had Ireland gotten their shit together, they would have beaten New Zealand, and I think they would go into this final as favourites. But that's neither here nor there. We're going to start today with a little bit of nostalgia, because over the weekend we lost one of the great figures in the history of the game with the passing of Bobby Charlton at the age of 83. Charlton is best known for his time with Manchester United and, of course, with England winning 
the European Cup with Manchester United, winning the World Cup with England. But those trophies don't do justice to what a great player he was, as great as they are. This is, in my view, arguably the greatest English player of all time. A Ballon d'Or winner. Second in the Ballon d'Or twice. Three years in a row among the two best players on the planet. No other English player can ever claim to have done that. And he did that in the 1960s when some of the greatest superstars to ever play the game were at their primes. You had Pele. Now, admittedly, he wasn't eligible for this award, but you had Pele. You had Beckenbauer. You had Eusebio. You had Lev Yashin. You had Dennis Law, his teammate. Florian Albert, the great Hungarian. George Best. How many teams can claim to have had three Ballon d'Ors winners playing together. That United team of the 1960s is so often forgotten about when we talk about the greatest teams of all time. Law in 64, Charlton in 66, and Best in 68, winning the Ballon d'Or. It's incredible. It's inconceivable now the three players from the one team, let alone three players that play an attack together from the one team, could win the Ballon d'Or. Bobby Charlton playing in an attacking midfield role for United, but a role in which he also did a lot of defensive work. He was an all-rounder. Good at absolutely everything. No weaknesses to his game. Completely two-footed. Great passer but known, obviously, as a great goal scorer. And if you consider that, he scored 249 goals for Manchester United, which, when he retired, was United's record and remained United's record until Wayne Rooney passed it. And Wayne Rooney played a lot more advanced than Bobby Charlton did. Now, there are similarities in their game, similar Rooney was a bit more heavy set, but similar type of size, similar type of strength, similar type of hustle and bustle about them. Both excellent passers. Rooney's an underrated passer. Great shooter, great connection. Charlton could do it both feet, though. That's what separates him largely from Rooney. Rooney did play more of his career as a forward, so I'm not sitting here doing the thing that United fans try and do where they claim he played in midfield for half his career. But Rooney only beat him by four games. I'm sorry, by four goals. Now, he did it quicker. Charlton, 758 games. Rooney, 559. So, you know, 200 games in the difference there. But again, Rooney was doing it, playing in attack. For England, 49 goals in 106 games. Again, a record that stood until Wayne Rooney beat it. Rooney had 53 in 120, again playing more advanced, scoring a lot more penalties, and doing it against weaker competition. Because if you think about international football, when Charlton was playing, you didn't have a lot of the fodder that we now have in international football. 
you didn't have as many easy friendlies. When you played friendlies, they tended to be against the top nations because they were real tests. They were showcases. They were a way to make money. People didn't want to see England against Luxembourg. People wanted to see England against Hungary, England against Germany, England against Italy, England against Spain and France. They want to see them test themselves against the very best. You look at Bobby Charlton's goal return for United across his entire career. There are only four seasons between the 1956-57 season and the 1972-73 season. Only four seasons in which he didn't hit double figures. In 56-57, in only 17 games, he scores 12 goals. Then he goes 16-30, and 29-39. and 39. 29 goals from midfield in 39 games is outrageous. 21-40, and 21-42, and 10-43, and 9-34. And, and some might have said, oh, he's, he's slowing down here. 15 in, 50, in 54... 18 and 59, 18 and 54, 12 and 44, slowing down again? No. 20 and 53, 7 in 48, 14 and 57, 8 and 50, 12 in 53, and 7 and 41. So five seasons. Five seasons in total where he didn't hit double figures. Versus 14 where he did. <clears throat> 14 seasons of double figures is incredible for a midfielder. And he did it in all competitions. Like in Europe, he scored 22 goals in 45 games for United. Against the best of the best. Back when you were in the European Cup, you were only playing the team that had won their own domestic league. You were in the UEFA Cup, you were playing the team that finished second maybe often, maybe sometimes third in the domestic league. Cup Winners' Cup, you're playing against a team that won the cup that year. For United, he won three straight FA Youth Cups, back when the FA Youth Cup was a massive thing. He won three league titles, 56-57, 64-65, 66-67. He won the FA Cup in 62-63, was a finalist twice, 56, 57, and 57, 58. And won the European Cup in 67, 68. And it must, of course, be remembered that he was also on the plane that crashed in February of 1958. February 6th, 1958, one of the darkest days English football has ever experienced. United were reigning league champions, making their first foray in the European Cup, had played away to Red Star Belgrade on the flight home. Plane stopped in Munich to refuel. There was snow, there was ice plane should not have taken off. They made multiple attempts to take off. They made one last attempt. They got to the point of no return. The plane wouldn't lift and it crashed. 23 people died. 
Only 21 survived. The Busby Babes, potentially set to be the dominant force in world football, was decimated. Jeff Bent, Roger Byrne, Eddie Coleman, Duncan Edwards, Mark Jones, David Pegg, Tommy Taylor and Bill Whelan all passed away. Seven of them in the crash, Duncan Edwards passed away two weeks later from his injuries. Charlton was knocked unconscious in the crash. He doesn't remember the crash. He was pulled from the wreckage by a teammate who thought he was dead. It turned out he had minor injuries. He contemplated retirement, contemplated never playing the game again, the game he loved. He'd lost his friends, he'd lost his teammates. And somehow he came back and he led United to a cup final. And he rebuilt his career. And he went on, like I said earlier, to be, in my view, the greatest English player of all time. He's the best player in the England team that wins the 1966 World Cup. Scores two goals in the semi-final to get them past Portugal. Plays a vital role in the final. Whereas normally he would be primarily attacking-focused, Alf Ramsey asked him to sacrifice himself in that game, to do a really dirty job that nobody would really want to do, which was to man-mark Franz Beckenbauer. Beckenbauer played in midfield. Does this myth that Beckenbauer always played in defence? He didn't. He played in midfield quite a bit as well. Bobby Moore was asked to man-mark him. To go where he goes, stop him receiving the ball. And if he does get the ball, stop him from playing it forward. Stop him from carrying it. And if you watch that game back, which is readily available, you can go and find it very easily to watch. Every time Franz Beckenbauer gets the ball, Bobby Charlton is snapping at him over and over and over again. And his teammate from Manchester United, Nobby Styles, nominally a defender, but playing as sort of a holding midfielder, proving once again that the holding midfielder is vital in all situations and always has been. If Beckenbauer could get past Charlton, Nobby Styles would snap in on him. But Bobby Charlton didn't care about the personal glory. He cared about the team. He wanted the team to win because that was what mattered. It was what always mattered to him. It was always putting the team first and... Everybody knows he obviously went on to become a director for Manchester United for many, many years. And many times, p- former players have spoken about how if they did something that was a little bit about them and not so much about the team, Charlton would pull them aside, even when they were superstars. And he was just some old geezer. But they had that respect for him because it was drilled into them by Ferguson and by Charlton himself, of respecting what club they played for, what that club represented, the values of Manchester United, the traditions of Manchester United, things that have now been lost in many ways. But Charlton would pull them aside and say, we don't do that here. 
We're about the team here. The team wins and you benefit from that. But the team comes first. That's how he played. That's how he carried himself throughout his time in football. He was unsuccessful in a spell as a player-manager with Preston. He went on to have a little bit of a journeyman sort of end to his career. He played for Waterford United in the League of Ireland. Then he went and played in Australia for Newcastle United, Perth Azuri, and Blacktown City. Why not? Why not go and experience it? Why not capitalise on your fame? I don't know how much money he made from them, but I assume he got handsomely rewarded for making those adventures. But when you watch Bobby Charlton play, you could easily put him in the modern game. You can easily see Bobby Charlton in today's game. His ability on the ball would translate across time. Like I mentioned earlier, a great pass with the ball off either foot. Excellent at carrying the ball, a really good dribbler. Made it look easy. Could beat a man without moving the ball. With a, a drop of the shoulder here, body faint there. A head fake the other way. He'd leave defender sitting on the floor. Great center of gravity. Really quick and nimble on the turn. Incredible, incredible talent. And then that ability to shoot with both feet. And you have to remember, when you watch those games from the 60s, and you see him unleash a shot from... 20, 25 yards off either foot and it arrows into the net. Remember that the the ball they were playing with weighed a ton. They were kicking a rock. Wasn't like the balls now that just explode off the foot. That ability to generate power with minimal backlift was just phenomenal. The timing of his runs, the intelligence he played with, the movement, the understanding of the game, spatial awareness, always able to find a half yard of space. Always. More than comfortable to receive the ball under pressure, turn out of that pressure and launch an attack. And his understanding with Dennis Law playing through the middle ahead of him and George Best playing in a roving wing role where he was, you know, almost a free role. But Charlton would always know where he was without without fail. Charlton could pick the ball up and he would know where Best was and he could find him instantly with a pass. That picture he had in his head was just, it's what we talk about when we talk about the likes of De Bruyne. He picks the ball up. He doesn't need to look because he's already looked. He's already had that scan. He's taken that picture and he's advanced it in his mind. This is where they were three seconds ago. So this is where they'll be now. And he just puts the ball there. Bobby Charlton was doing that in the 50s and 60s. With rocks, playing with boots that were held together with little tacks. A a genuine joy to watch. A joy to watch that United team 
that England team and him in particular, doesn't matter who you support. If you're a football fan, you can watch and appreciate genuine greatness. And for him to overcome what he overcame with Munich and go on to have the career that he had, like I said, a Ballon d'Or winner three times in a row in the top two in an era littered with all-time greats. Winning a World Cup, winning a European Cup. There can't be many players. There's certainly no other English player who's won the World Cup, the European Cup and the Ballon d'Or. But to do all of that in the span of two years is amazing. And that was Charlton 29-30-31. Earlier in his career, when he was putting up 29 goals in, in a season, he was more dynamic. Now, he didn't have the same level of intelligence, didn't have that experience. And the thing about him was he was able to adapt his game. As his athleticism waned, he became much more of an intelligent player. He timed his runs more. Early in his career, you watch him, he's like a greyhound. He's everywhere. He's everywhere at speed. Later in his career, he's timing those runs. The type of thing, you know, when, when people talk about Frank Lampard and, and Paul Scholes and Ilkay Gundogan in recent years, arriving late in the box into that little bit of space because the defence has collapsed to the six-yard line. The midfield has gotten to the 18-yard line and they just get just beyond that, into that little bit of space. He was doing that back then. He pioneered that in English football. That's why he was able to be so great for so long. A truly, truly wonderful player. A great man who dedicated his life to the game. And also pioneered a hairstyle, an unfortunate hairstyle. But if you grew up in Ireland or England and you had a grandfather who was largely bald, had a few strands of hair and would sweep them over, sometimes with the help of the old style brill cream, that was known as the Bobby Charlton. Like people talk about how modern players inspire, like whether he meant, whether it was done in jest or not, that was the Bobby Charlton haircut. People that don't know anything about football know that as the Bobby Charlton haircut. Magnificent. To this day, and he's been retired from England since 1970, from United since 1973, he's still second all-time for United in goals and third all-time for England. And consider how many great players United have had in the interim. Consider how many great players England have had in the interim. Like Alan Shearer didn't get close. Michael Owen, I think, would have broken the record if he hadn't had the injury issues. Lineker got the closest. 
But Lineker was a penalty box number nine who did nothing else. So even if he'd matched Charlton, it wouldn't have been as impressive. He also did it with far more modern medicine, training methods, nutrition, modern pitches, modern boots, modern footballs. The lad's doing it now. Everything is like it's a different world. And not only that, it's a different game in many ways because it's so much less physical. If you go back and watch England versus Argentina in the 66 World Cup, which, by the way, is one of only two games in which Bobby Charlton was ever booked in his entire career, a career in which he played 106 times for England, a career in which he played 812 senior club games. He was booked twice. And one of them is that game against Argentina. But genuinely, find that game and and count the absolutely nailed-on red cards in the modern game. There's one red card given to an Argentine and aside from that, there could have been five or six more. Both sides should have ended with like seven or eight players. But the Argies particularly set out to boot England off the pitch and they targeted him and he gets booted violently multiple times. The other game he was booked in then was a league match against Chelsea and who wouldn't want to just boot a Chelsea player up in the air? He's one of only nine players in history to win the World Cup, the European Cup, and the Ballon d'Or. Go and look at who the others are. Genuinely, go and look at who the others are. It is a who's who of the greats. And so many, like a lot of them have been recent additions to that list. And he did it back then. Only one other guy that I can think of from his era that did it was Beckenbauer. I could be missing somebody. I don't think I am. I think Beckenbauer is the only other one from that era. Gerd Muller. Gerd Muller would have done it as well. But, I mean, look, t- think of those two names. Franz Beckenbauer, Gerd Muller, and Bobby Charlton's right in that mix. Um, We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do the weekend's games. We'll do the gossip, and we'll be done. We'll rattle through the games. There's a few of them that aren't really worth pausing over for too long. There's a few that are. But I'll see you after this. Right, welcome back. Uh, I would actually much rather spend the next 25 minutes or so talking more about Bobby Charlton, but um, we'll move on. We'll move on. Um, I will say, Gary Neville, who often speaks an immense amount of tripe, did a great tribute to him on the Sky Sports YouTube channel. You'll find it. And there's also a, a retrospective on his career that Sky put out as well, which is excellent. But I would encourage people to go and 
watch some of the games from the 66 World Cup or watch that European Cup final in 68, which is a tour de force by Bobby Charlton. An absolutely outrageous performance in which he was, I think, the best player on the pitch. Now, some will say best, who was also incredible. But Charlton scored two incredible goals in that game. Um, so yeah, go go and watch that game if if you if you if you want to see Bobby Charlton do what he does. Um, Premier League, Liverpool two, Everton nil. Two goals from Mohamed Salah, seventy five from the penalty spot in ninety seven to wrap things up. Everton. Reduced to 10 men as Ashley Young is sent off on 37 minutes. Luis Diaz just rinsing him. Um, I said, I've said all season, Ashley Young is an enormous weak spot for Everton and he's a liability and he proved it again at the weekend. The guy's just not capable of playing at the Premier League level anymore. And what's worrying for Everton fans is that when Seamus Coleman comes back, there's a really strong chance Dyche is going to put Coleman at right back and Young at left back, which will be two liabilities in the team at this point in their careers. Really good players in their peak. Now, not Premier League caliber players. Everton Everton have a weird block against Liverpool. Like there's no other way to really, uh, you know, look at it. Since the turn of the century, Everton have only beaten Liverpool five times. That's, Pretty pathetic in a local a local derby, regardless of the gulf between the teams. It hasn't always been there. For many years, they were very, very even. In recent years, it's entirely one-sided. 53 games, Everton have won five. Liverpool have won 29. Everton beat Liverpool under Roy Hodgson. They've played 29 times since then. Everton have won once. In the Premier League era, they've won 10 of 63 league games. Liverpool have won 29. It's so one-sided, it's become beyond a joke. Now, part of that is Liverpool have obviously gotten increasingly better under Jurgen Klopp. If you go back and look at 2012-2013, the last season of David Moyes at Everton, the first season of Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool, Everton finished sixth, two points ahead of Liverpool. Now, the following season, Liverpool finished second. But Everton were very good again and finished fifth. There was a 12-point gap between the sides, but Liverpool almost won the title. The season after that, 14-15, we start to see Everton slide a bit. They finish 11th. But Liverpool finished 6th. The gulf between them was only 15 points. It wasn't enormous. 15 points is the type of thing you can turn around over a couple of seasons with continued improvement. Then we look at... 15-16, Liverpool finish 8th with 60 points. Everton finish 11th with 47 points. So the gulf is staying there. 
16-17, Liverpool have a huge improvement and they finish in fourth. But Everton finished seventh. The gap is 15 points. So we're still in that same type of gap. But as Liverpool get better, Everton have gotten better. 14-point jump for Everton that season from the previous season. Into 17-18, Liverpool again finish fourth. Everton finish in eighth. Still respectable. The gap is significant, though. It's a 26-point gap between the sides. And that gap hasn't shrunk. In 18-19, Liverpool finished second with 97 points. Everton finished eighth, so still respectable. But the gap between them is 43 points, which is more than enough points to keep you safe in a Premier League campaign. 1920, Liverpool win the league with 99 points. Everton finished 12th, 50 points behind Liverpool. Liverpool more than doubled Everton's tally of 49. 2021, Liverpool were poor. They finished third with 69 points. Everton finished 10th with 59. So the gap is 10 points, but it is more to do with Liverpool being poor and racked by injuries. 21-22 then, things start to get grim for Everton. Liverpool finished second on 92 points. Everton finished 16th. That's the biggest gap between them in terms of league position and also the biggest gap between them in terms of points. Everton get 39 points, Liverpool get 92 53 points of a gap. Now, last season, Liverpool were poor. So Everton closed the gap in terms of points. Liverpool finished in fifth on 67. Everton only finished 31 points behind them. But Everton finished 17th and were almost relegated. And this season, the season is still fresh. We're only nine games in. We're at the, the quarter mark in the season. Liverpool have 20 points. They're already 13 points ahead of Everton. Liverpool are third and Everton are 16th. For years, the gap was minimal. There'd be the odd season where Liverpool might do really well and Everton would be just okay or they might have a poor season. But you weren't seeing 50-point gaps. You weren't seeing 30-point gaps very often. You were seeing two teams that were relatively evenly matched in those derbies. Now, it is, there's no comparison. Go through the two teams, pick a combined 11. It's all Liverpool players. The manager is Klopp. And the thing is, it's not like Everton have terrible players. There's a good 11 at Everton. Pickford, questionable, but Pickford, Patterson, Tarkovsky, Branthwaite, Michaelenko, Onana, Garner, McNeil from the right, Harrison from the left, or flip them, Danjuma off, Calvert-Lewin. And then in terms of depth, you've got Ben Godfrey, who's a good player. You've got 
Idrissagana Gay, who's a good player. You've got Dukure, who's a good player. You've got Beto. You've got Chermetti. Then you've got the experience of your Young and your Coleman in the squad as, as leaders, as veterans. If Delhi Ali could get himself back on the pitch and, and can, can get right, he could be a contributing player. That's not a bad group of players. That's a 15 with the starting 11 I listed plus Godfrey, Gay, Decoure, and Beto. That's a 15 that you'd be, I think, fairly comfortable to go into a lot of games with. Godfrey can cover right back or centre back. Branthwaite could go to left back if you needed a back up there. Gay covers the midfield. Dukure can play midfield or that 10 spot. And Beto covers the number nine. The only thing they don't have is real natural cover in the wide areas, but Danjuma can play wide. So, you know. It's not a squad that's lacking. It's not a squad that's lacking any massive piece. It doesn't have pace. It doesn't have huge amounts of creativity outside of Danjuma. The two wide players can provide quality depth, but it's a solid team. Like, it's a mid-table team. Look at the Premier League table. Crystal Palace, their team's not much better than Everton's. I don't think the Wolves team is better than that Everton team I laid out. Neto and Cunha are better than the players Everton have. But I think I'd take Pickford slightly over Jose Sa. Maybe they're about the same level. I'd take the Everton back four. I take Onana and Garner over the Wolves midfield. And I like the Wolves midfield. I think there's talent there in Traore and, and Gomes and Tommy Doyle. The wide players will be McNeil and Neto. And you take Cunha over Danjuma, but you take Calvert Lewin over Huang or Sasa. Like they should be. They should be at least level with them. I'd, I'd rather have the Everton team than the Fulham team. I'd rather have the Everton team of fifth, or there's the group of 15 that, that I laid out than what Brentford currently have. I'd rather have it than the Forest squad. Again, all of these teams have players that would get into that team. But overall, I'd rather take the Everton group. But yet the team closest to them in the league is Luton. There's a two-point gap there. There's at least three between Everton and everybody above them. And genuinely, other than Issa Kabore, who I think I'd take over Patterson, but it's close, there's no one else in that Luton team that gets in the Everton team, and yet they went to Everton and beat them. So the issue with Everton isn't that the players are crap. It's not that the manager's crap. It's that the club right now is crap. There's a losing mentality within that club. And it translates from the very top all the way down. And it translates into the fan base. 
This is a fan base who seem to have convinced themselves <clears throat> that the only reason they lose to Liverpool year after year after year is because of the referees. You've won five games in 23 years, 10 months and 23 days. Five. You've won once in the last 13 years. No Everton fan has been in the stadium to watch Everton beat Liverpool since Roy Hodgson was Liverpool manager. And a big part of it is they make the right decision and then every decision that follows that is the wrong one. Like Marco Silva, as an example, was a really good appointment. And they got Marcel Brands in. Now, they came in off the back of Moyes, Martinez, Koeman, and Allardyce. Four managers who'd been there in the previous five or so years and bought players. They'd had the two David Unsworth uh, caretaker spells as well. But the problem is, Moyes and Martinez played play their football totally different ways. Pooman plays his football differently to both of them. And then Big Sam plays his football differently to all three of them. So Silva took over a squad that had been built by four different managers. And if you look at what Dyche is dealing with now, it's a squad that's been built by eight managers. And Silva did well to start with, and then things went badly. And rather than give him time, rather than be patient, rather than try and work it out, they reacted because the fans got the hump. The fans got upset. The fans got angry. And rather than say, you know what? Maybe we just trust the people who are professionals and not listen to the fans. Because most times fans don't know what they're talking about. They reacted and they sacked him. And you see what he's doing at Fulham now. And you see where Everton are now. See where they were last season compared to Fulham. Even the season before when Fulham were in the championship with Silva, Fulham fans had a lot more fun than Everton fans did that year. But, you know, after Silva, Carlo had money to spend. Benitez had some money to spend. Lampard spent money. Dyche has now spent money. You've got a squad of players there that's just been patched together by a bunch of different managers. Like Pickford was signed by Koeman. Michael Keane was signed by Koeman. Calvert-Lewin, God knows who signed him. 2016. Koeman. Would have been Koeman, wouldn't it? Like, Koeman is many, many managers ago, and yet there's still important players there that were bought by him to do something. And now they're managed by somebody who needs them to do something else. And the best runs of their career came under a manager who plays differently to the manager who's there now. For Michael Keane, it was under Marco Silva. For Pickford, it was probably under Lampard. And for Calvert-Lewin, it was under Carlo. But there's no 
there's no cohesion in the squad. There's no there's no sense to the squad. Even two of the players that are out on loan, Holgate and Mopay, they're flawed, but they're decent players. And you add them to that 15-man list that I mentioned earlier, that's 17 players now. Now you're three short of a match day 20. And you can fill that out with Joe Virginia, who's a solid backup goalkeeper, who's a talented keeper, and the two older lads, Coleman, when fit, and Ashley Young. In the meantime, while Coleman's out, you just throw one of the kids on the bench. Throw Lewis Dobbin on the bench or Tyler Onyanga, Onyango. Put one of them on there. There's no excuse for, for Everton being as bad as they are. But their fans want an excuse. And their excuse is, oh, it's the referees. The referees are against us. It's not the referees. It's that your club has a loser's mentality. Until you get rid of that, you're going nowhere. You're going to struggle. You're going to battle relegation. And Everton shouldn't be battling relegation. A club as big and as important as Everton should not be in this position. Just shouldn't. This is the third season in a row where you're going to be battling relegation. Can you fluke survival for a third season? It remains to be seen. I have my doubts. Moving on, uh, Brentford 3, Burnley 0. Johan Wiesa opens the scoring after good work for Brian, from Brian Mbomo. Uh, Mbomo made it 2 on 62 minutes with an absolute peach. Really well-worked team goal. And then Saman Godos scored undeniably the goal of the weekend with an absolute worldie on the half volley from the edge of the box. I believe he counted as a half volley, controls it and it bounces and he absolutely lashes it and flies in. Keeper has no chance. Um, Brentford were considerably better than Burnley in this game. Uh, Connor Roberts was sent off for a second yellow card. Could have actually been a straight red. But Burnley were just outmatched by Brentford. There's just no way around it. Uh, Bournemouth 1, Wolves 2. You will rarely this season see a player let their teammates down as much as Lewis Cook let his team down here. Uh, Bournemouth went one up on 17 minutes through Solanke after nice work, nice build up down the right hand side. Low cross from Billing and Solanke with that little back heel flick that he's done a couple of times puts them one up. Matthias Cunha equalized on 47 minutes with a really nicely worked goal by Wolves. Lewis Cook was sent off on 54. So first of all, he hacks down Huang in a petulant kick. And Huang gets up and reacts and pushes him, which is, I think is a fair reaction. And I know you can't put your hands on the opponent, but that type of, of booting is meant to be outlawed in the game today. Wasn't in the good old days. And Cook just flicks his head at him. And it, it's, the contact is minimal. And it's embarrassing the way Huang goes down. It's embarrassing. But Cook gave him the opportunity to go down and made it so the referee had to send him off. And when you're in the position born with the Rao right now, when you're in that position, you you can't do that. You cannot deplete yourselves to 10 men. 
Wolves almost scored one of the goals of the season. Some gorgeous build-up work down the left-hand side involving Neto and Cunha and Huang and Nuri and it's pulled back in and Neto just just skies it, unfortunately. It would have been a great goal. It looked like it was heading for a draw. Both sides had some moments. Oatara came on and looked really dangerous down the left for Bournemouth. And then the ball goes out of play for a Bournemouth goal kick. And you're just thinking, you've been under a little bit of pressure here. Just take 15 to 20 seconds. Take some of the sting out of this. Let your team take a rest, take catch, catch the breath, get up the pitch, and then hump it as long as you can. Hump it as far down the pitch as you can possibly put your foot through it. And Neto decides to take a brainless short goal kick. Now, Billing did call for it, and Billing should do better. It's weak from Billing. But Neto's the captain. He's the most experienced player in the team. It's an unforgivable mistake. And that was a game that Bournemouth needed something from. It really did. And they've got Burnley at home next, and they have to win that now. That is now a must-win. But they've thrown this away. They played some lovely football in the first first half, and Alex Scott, on his first start, looked the absolute business. He looked tailor-made for the Premier League. I was really impressed with Traore in midfield for, for Wolves. He, he just looks a proper presence, a proper ball winner. This, there was a lot of really good players on show here. Kirk is at left back for Bournemouth. Zabarni at right side centre back. Scott. Tavernier's a nice winger. Now, I don't know why is not starting. I've always liked David Brooks. And then for Wolves, you've got Kilman. Traore, Eight, Nuri, Huang and Cunha. Like, a lot of good players on the pitch there. And it was a decent game. And it probably should have ended in a draw. But Bournemouth just decided to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, Nottingham Forest 2, Luton 2. Speaking of shooting yourself in the foot, Forest went 2-0 up with two goals from Chris Wood. They should have been at least 4-0 up. Sanger missed an absolute sitter. Wood had a fairly straightforward-headed chance that he put over the bar. Forrest completely outplayed Luton and then got outdone through a combination of Serge Aurier and not being able to cope with the long ball. So the first goal is a free kick to Luton on the left-hand side of the pitch. It's a really poor free kick. It's a dreadful free kick. It's coming at... Aurier, who's the first man, about knee height, off a bounce. And for some reason, and only he can answer this, he tried to head it. I swear it's knee height. And he tried to head it and he got too low and it went over his head. And then it was just chaos. And the ball fell to Ogbena and he finished really well. And then in 92 minutes, it's a simple lump into the box from Tom Lockyer. It's it's literally put it in and hope for the best. Adebayo, out muscles Warrell. Ola Aina doesn't react, doesn't get into a covering position. 
Good touch by Adebayo. But if Aina has reacted, he clears it simple. If he doesn't react, Adebayo gets to first. It's a really nice finish. And Luton get a point that they really didn't deserve, but that they kept fighting for in the end. Not on balance of play, but on the last 15 minutes, they did deserve on their reaction from going 2-0 down, they did did deserve it. But Forrest should have been free and clear long before their own second goal. Manchester City 2, Brighton and Hove Albion 1. Now, I have uh, made <clears throat> an official complaint to uh, the Greater Manchester Police following this game for abuse of the elderly because what Jeremy Doku did to James Milner in that game was criminal. He abused that man. He embarrassed him in front of his family and friends. Uh, City went one up through Alvarez on seven minutes. It's a a very fortunate goal. It's well worked, and Alvarez comes on, and he shoots. But he completely mishits it, and he hits it almost, he almost hits over the ball, and it hits the ground, and loops with a spin on it and goes over Jason Steele. Now, why Jason Steele was in goal, I have no idea. Same reason that James Milner was at right back, because De Zerbe is unwell, I think. Uh, Erling Haaland made a two on 19 minutes. Belieber gives the ball away a little bit cheaply. Haaland picks it up. I don't understand why Lewis Dunk just keeps backing away. Just go and meet the man. Foul him if you need to. He backs up, backs up, and Haaland shoots from 20 yards out. And a, a good goalkeeper saves it. Jason Seal's not a good goalkeeper. Uh, Ansu Fati got one back for Brighton on 73 after Matoma had already missed. Missed a great, great chance. Matoma missed a great chance. Brighton had missed two good chances in this game. Gross had one in the first half, but the, I was in the, it was actually in the second half, but Matoma's chance is the big one. Like he has to score from there. One-on-one against City's backup goalkeeper who comes right to the edge of his box. You just think Matoma will knock it by him. And at best, the keeper's going to pull him down. That's a penalty red card and away you go. But he shoots first time. Keeper does really well. Really, really well. Makes makes himself big, makes the save. And then deals with it afterwards. Um... Ansu Fati scores, and then Manuel Akanji was sent off in the 95th minute, as Brighton really did try and open City up, but unfortunately just had left it too late. Newcastle 4, Crystal Palace 0. Now, nobody is ever going to convince me that Jacob Murphy meant that first goal, ever. Crossfield ball, Trippier does well, lays it into Murphy. Murphy is trying to hook it across the box. He mishits it, and he lobbed Sam Johnston. And initially it wasn't given because it was an offside flag, but VAO reviewed it. It was clearly onside and the goal was given. Uh, from there, Newcastle were rampant and they probably should have been 3-0 up before they scored the second goal. Second goal came from Anthony Gordon. Then they immediately turn around and score again through Sean Longstaff after just a bad error by Mark Guehi. He slips. It's unfortunate, but it's a bad error. And then Callum Wilson wrapped it up on 66 and Newcastle were just levels above. Now, I will say it was made easy for them by the fact that Hodgson picked Dakuri and Lerma, both of whom are clearly not fully fit. 
because he had to, he didn't really have any options. Like there was, you look at the bench, Ahamada could have played, but he's just back from injury as well. Um, I'm not sure who else he could have, he could have gone with. He did bring on uh, David Azo, who's an 18 year old kid for a debut. I think it was his debut anyway. And he does look promising that kid. Yeah, it was his debut. Um, but he was put on when the game was over. It was 4-0. Um, one bright spot for Palace that they can take some solace from is that Matthias Franco, or Matthias Franca got his debut. So he's back fit and will be available for, uh, for selection now. So that's a big plus. They'll get Elise back. They'll get Eze back. Dakuri will get back to fitness. Lerma will get back to fitness and they'll be, they'll be more than comfortable, but this was just a bad day for them. Uh, moving on then. To the evening kickoff, Chelsea 2, Arsenal 2. Chelsea go 1-0 up on 15 minutes. Cole Palmer from the penalty spot after a handball by William Saliba. Wasn't given initially. Referee waved it away and was quite arrogant about it. A blatant handball. Uh, Thankfully, the VAO review came to light and gave the penalty. Palmer stepped up and scored very well. Uh, Mikhailo Mudrik made it two on 48 minutes. Uh, he's attempting to claim he meant this in absolutely no way that he mean this goal. He doesn't even look at the goal before he crosses it. And he crosses it. He looks to cross it for Sterling. He mishits it and it goes over Raya's head because Raya's badly positioned. Raya almost gifted Chelsea a third with a, a slack pass to um, Cole Palmer. Palmer should do better, but unfortunately the first touch is a little bit a little bit heavy because he's not expecting the ball to be kicked to him by the opposition goalkeeper 10 yards from goal or 15 yards from goal. Uh, having seen Raya make two big errors, Robert Sanchez then decided he wanted to get in on the act and he plays a dreadful pass. He has Enzo 12 yards away and he just overhits it and plays it straight to Declan Rice. Rice just steps onto it and it's an empty net. He just passes it in. It's a very simple goal. It looks spectacular because he's quite far out, but it's an empty goal with nothing between him and the goal. Any decent passer puts it in the net. Rice, a decent passer, puts it in the net. It was the only good thing that Declan Rice did in his afternoons or his evenings work as he was once again completely dog-walked by Moises Caicedo. Uh, Leandro Trossard would grab an equaliser on 84. Malo Gusto had been excellent at right back and he had marked Martinelli out of the game and sent him off for an early shower and he just switches off and he knows he switches off. The cross comes in, he's not aware of it, but Trossard is coming in around the back and as soon as he sees Trossard, his hands go up because he knows he's made a big mistake. Uh, Arsenal managed to salvage a point. I, I wouldn't suggest it was a deserved point. But a point is a point, and they'll be happy enough, I suppose. Um, Sheffield United won, Manchester United two. Scott McTominay is Manchester United's most informed player, and that's a terrifying thing if you're a Manchester United fan. Uh, it's really poor defending from Sheffield United. It's a simple ball into the box. McTominay's first touch is akin to a bouncing castle. And nobody bothers to make a challenge. And he just waits for it to come back down. And he finishes really well. On 
34 minutes, Ollie McBurney equalises from the penalty spot after Scott McTominay decides that having gotten a bit of luck at one end, he'll now give a bit of luck at the other and handles a cross in a foolish way. McBurney steps up and scores. McBurney had missed a sitter earlier in the game. So this kind of made up for it, except it doesn't really, because you don't, unless you win 1-0, you haven't really made up for it. You know, unless the other team don't do anything and you, you just score the only goal, you haven't really made up for it. If it's a draw, you've still cost your team two points, even if you score the equaliser. If you lose, you've still cost your team points. So yeah, you haven't you haven't made up for it at all. But anyway, this game looked destined to end 1-1. United were awful again. Now Rashford missed a decent chance, but that was about it. Amrabat hits the post slash crossbar from fully 30 yards out. Really good strike. And then within probably 30 seconds of that, the ball gets worked back round to Delo, about 20 yards out, 25 yards out maybe. And he hits a really nice left-footed shot. Keeper gets both hands to it. You could argue you'd like to see him do better, but I don't think he could stop it. I genuinely don't think he could stop it. I think it's just a really good hit by Delo. And it's a goal worthy of winning a game. And United get out of there with three points. Um, and again, we can debate whether they deserve them or not, but they get out of there with, with three points. Yesterday, we only had the one game. It was Aston Villa against West Ham. It was a really evenly balanced game on paper. But Villa, Villa come away with a comprehensive victory and a really impressive performance. Douglas Louise put them one up on 30 minutes. He had earlier in the game drawn an unbelievable save from Ariola, where he bent a shot right into the top corner and Ariola somehow clawed it out. This one, he strikes it early. Ariola sees it late and just can't readjust. And then it goes. On 52 minutes, Villa get a penalty after a guard. It's just a silly challenge. It's just a silly, silly challenge. Villa get the penalty. Douglas Suiz steps up and Douglas Suiz's money from the six, from the 12 yard spot. So 2 0. But then Jared Bowen gets one back for West Ham. Now, I think this should be an own goal. Bowen's shot is going wide of the near post and it takes a deflection and it goes in at the far post. It's definitely going wide off his boot. I think it's technically an own goal, but I'm glad they've given it to him because I don't like when some of these get changed. Um, on 74 minutes, Ollie Watkins makes it 3-1. Typical Ollie Watkins goal. It's a ball into the channel. He squares up Zuma. He doesn't try to beat him. He does a step over, which puts Zuma on his heels and creates an extra half yard of space. And he just unleashes a left-footed shot into the top corner. It's a really, really good goal. And then on 89 minutes, it's 4-1. Good build-up play down the right. Ball comes to Leon Bailey. And he does a very similar thing to what Watkins did, except he's doing it to get back inside in his left foot, whereas Watkins was to get outside in his left foot. He does a step over, which makes a guard throw his weight in the direction of the step over, thinking he's going to go on the outside. And it's just a lovely finish with his left foot into the far corner. Villa were very, very good. Now, West Ham didn't deserve to lose the game 4-1. And they're still a good team. But 
I do think we saw enough of a gulf between the two sides to suggest that Villa, while I don't think they're a top four candidate this year, I think they're going to be a Europa League team. Whereas West Ham, I think, are going to be in a group that will battle for the Conference League, but I don't think they've got much more in them than that. The table as it stands has City top, 21 points. Arsenal second, 21 points. Liverpool third, 20 points. Tottenham fourth, 20 points. Villa fifth, 19 points. Newcastle sixth, 16 points. Brighton seventh, 16 points. Manchester United climbing to eighth, 15 points. West Ham ninth, 14 points. Chelsea 10th, 12 points. Palace 11th, 12 points. Wolves 12th, 11 points. Fulham 13th, 11 points. Brentford 14th, 10 points. Forest 15th and 10 points. And if they won that game like they should have won that game, Nottingham Forest would currently be 11th. That's the... That's what switching off and not clearing your lines can do. Then we have Everton in 16th with seven points. Luton in 17th with five points. Burnley in 18th with four points. Bournemouth in 19th with three points. And Sheffield United, bottom of the table, one point from their nine games. Now, we do have a game tonight. It is Tottenham Hotspur versus Fulham. And this is an opportunity for Spurs, obviously, to go top of the table again. But also, it's the start of a favourable little run for Spurs here, where they go um, Fulham home, Palace away. I think they should win that. Chelsea home. I think they should win that. And then Wolves away. I think they should win that. I think this should be four wins between now and the next international break. But I think if they take Nine points from these four games, I, th- I still think that's a good return. I still would, would class that as a good return if they can take nine points. Eight would be a little bit low. I think you're looking for 10 as a minimum, to be honest, three wins and a draw. But nine would nine would be a good return. It gets tougher after that. They're four games out of the break. Are Villa home, City away, West Ham home, Newcastle home. The home is important, but still, that's four good teams they'll take on. Ahead of tonight's game, just a quick glance at the injury situation. Uh, no Perisic, no Manor Solomon. He's off promoting genocide. Uh, Ryan Sessignon is out. R- Rodrigo Bentancur is out. Basuma is suspended. Brennan Johnson should be back. And Alfie, Whiteland, uh, Alfie Whiteman is out. Uh, for Fulham, no Tosin, no Diop, no Adama, and no Kenny Tete. I have Spurs to win. I think it'll be a decent game, but I think Spurs will will win this game. Coach, but I just don't see where Fulham's goals are coming from. Like Joe Polinia is excellent, but he can't do everything in midfield on his own, and that midfield doesn't have enough creativity. Now you've got Pereira, and you've got. Wilson and you've got Willian and they're creative players, but there's no goals really in them. Wilson will score from set pieces. Pereira scores some penalties. Willian will score three worldies a season, but you're not getting enough open play goals. And then up front, Raul Jimenez, 
I mean, I, I, I really like Raul Jimenez when he was at Wolves. I loved him when he first came over. I thought he was outstanding. He was someone I looked at and thought, you know what Liverpool could do with an, a different type of nine. He's got Bobby traits, but he can also be a target man. He can play off the shoulder. He was a really, really good player. You see him getting 17 and 44 in his first season, and then he gets 27 and 55. He's in the form of his career. Starts the next season with four and ten, four and 11, and then he has that horrendous, horrendous injury. And since then, in 64 games, he scored nine goals. So, like, that's just, that's not going to cut it at the Premier League level. Um, Right, that is where we are with the Premier League. Let us get into the news and gossip. Um, Manchester City have condemned offensive chants made by their fans about Bobby Charlton. I hope they'll go further than that and find whoever it was and ban them for life. Absolutely disgusting. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Um Olympiacos versus Panikonikos had to be abandoned after a player was struck by a firecracker thrown onto the pitch. What else do we have here? Uh, Papu Gomez says that his doping ban is as a result of taking his son's cough medicine. Sure, definitely. Yeah, no, we all believe that. Uh, Jose Mourinho was sent off in Roma's game against Monza. Uh, yesterday, a 1-0 win for Roma, a late goal by El Shawari. Monza had played 50-plus minutes with 10 men after D'Ambrosio was sent off for two yellow cards in the first half. And when the Monza bench was complaining about the officiating, Mourinho turned round and mimicked crying. And he got himself sent off. Jose, always classy, always classy. Uh, on to the gossip we go. Napoli president Aurelio De Laurinaitis has suggested star forward Victor Osman will be sold with Arsenal, Chelsea and Liverpool all keen on a move for the Nigerian international. He didn't really suggest that at all. He said that it was maybe a possibility. He didn't say it was likely or anything like that. Uh, Liverpool see Osman as a potential replacement for Mohamed Salah. Would require a change in shape, but I do think if they would were to go to a 4-4-2 type of shape, play Diaz left wing, Sabozlai right wing, McAllister and a defensive midfielder in the middle, Osman and Nunes up front, Alexander-Arnold, the best cross in the world at right back, upgrade the left back, and then you have Kanata and Van Dijk. I do really like the idea of that. Now, I, I would like... I would like a new left winger. I like Diaz. I really like Diaz, but I'd love Pedro Neto on that left wing. I think if you could put Pedro Neto on the left, Goncalo and Asio behind him as the left back for defensive strength, push Trent on from right back. So you've got Neto and Trent wide with their crossing ability. And then Zabozlai defensive midfielder and Alexis more central. Zabozlai almost playing as a 10 behind that front two, that would be, I think that would be scary to play against. And you've got Kanate, Van Dijk and Inacio as a solid back three, plus that holding midfielder screening in front. 
that's the dream for me. If Salah does go, which I obviously hope he doesn't, Osman, Inacio, and a really good holding midfielder, that's that's where Liverpool should spend the money. Now, Osman and Inacio would take up the money, but they can self-fund a defensive midfielder. Decore would be great. Onana would be great. Decore is the one I want. Um, though there is a recent link to uh, Ezekiel Fernandez of Boca Juniors, who I very much like. Uh, Real Madrid are eyeing a 35 million move for Alfonso Davies when he enters the final year of his deal with the German champions. And the other option for my 4-4-2 is to get an attacking left back, keep Diaz. So you've got, you know, Diaz left wing, but get a left footed attacker to over attacking left back to overlap him. And Alfonso Davies would be ideal. He'll have a year left in his contract in the summer. So it is doable. But if Real are interested, Real probably get. Uh, Newcastle are facing opposition as they try to persuade Manchester City to loan them Calvin Phillips with Bayern Munich ready to step in with a move for the England International. Pep Guardiola will not stop Phillips from leaving, but said the final decision will rest with the club, which is fairly standard. Juventus are also interested in Phillips as well as Rodrigo de Paul and Pierre-Emile Heusberg. Um Calvin Phillips is a really good player. Like, he's a really good player. So I- I'm not surprised that top clubs are looking at him. Just because he's not as good as Rodri doesn't mean he's not really good. Uh, Tottenham and West Ham are both tracking Trevor Chalaba. He's on my short list of holding midfielders. I know he predominantly played centre-back for Chelsea. But at Ipswich and Huddersfield, he was a holding midfielder. He is a holding midfielder by nature, in my in my view. I, I would be very, very happy with him as that defensive midfielder because he's also then covered centre-back. Uh, Chelsea are set to let Thiago Silva leave the club at the end of the season as they look to develop the younger players, not before time. Arsenal have a four-man shortlist of targets for the January transfer window despite only having a limited budget with Ivan Tony, the number one target. I, I just don't believe this to be true. Uh, ben White says he wants to stay at Arsenal for as long as possible. Of course he does. There's no expectation. They don't, it doesn't seem bad if you win anything. As long as you can pretend that you're building. The fan base seems happy. So, you know, it doesn't matter that they drop points three times already this season. They think being unbeaten is more important than winning games. Um, Liverpool remain confident of signing Fluminense midfielder Andre. Football Insider has no idea what Liverpool are doing. Manchester United and Newcastle are among clubs considering a January move for 20-year-old Valencia midfielder Javi Guerra. He's a good player. He's a very, very good player big time potential can be pretty much anything you want him to be in midfield. Um, would be a good fit next to Casemiro. I don't think he fit. he'd be a decent cover for Gamerish and Tenali with Tenali, which if Tenali is going to get a ban does make sense. Uh, Eric Ten Hag still expects to have his say about clubs transfers. If prospective new owner, Jim Radcliffe take up, takes over football operations. If, Jim Ratcliffe has any sense he tells Ten Hag to stay in his lane because the fella is atrocious at identifying talent. Yuri Thielemans would like 
more playing time at Aston Villa, but has called speculation that he wants to leave the club in January. Nonsense. Fair. Sporting Lisbon will not allow Victor Jacques to leave the club unless someone matches his 100 million euro release clause with Premier League and Serie A clubs interested. He's a really good player. Like he was far too good to be in the championship at Coventry. I still don't understand why Brighton let him go the way they did. I really struggle with to, to grasp what they were thinking. Because this was before Ferguson, so they, had, they were playing Danny Welbeck. And they had this demon available to, to them. And I get that the final season before they sold him, he did struggle between the loan at Swansea and then the initial loan at Coventry. But it was clear the talent. And then he joins Coventry in a permanent deal and scores 40 goals in 97 games and has 30 assists or whatever it was. Like he's just a really good all round player and nine goals already, or sorry, eight goals already in nine games for sporting proves that, you know, the, the quality is, is just immense. Uh, Barcelona sporting director Deco says finances presented Neymar returning to the club in the summer before he joined Al Halil. Well, aren't you glad he didn't now? Cause he's out with torn ACL. Former USA boss Bruce Arena is a candidate to replace Wayne Rooney at DC United. Um, yeah, well, Bruce Arena is a much better manager than Wayne Rooney, and he's just finished his stint with the New York Revolution, which you know didn't go brilliantly, but wasn't a disaster by any by any stretch. Obviously, he was very good with the USA. Was was good with LA Galaxy during his time with them. Has obviously coached DC United. That's where he made his name, won two MLS Cups and a supporter shield back in the 90s. He's got five MLS Cups to date and four supporter shields, including one with, with the Revolution. So, yeah, I think that would be a significant upgrade. A significant upgrade if that's who DC United appoint. Um Manchester City could rival Barcelona and Real Madrid in the race to sign Girona right-back Ana Martinez, who represents Spain's the 21 side. City obviously own Girona, so they would have an inside track, but the player might want to stay in Spain. I think he's probably more suited to Real than he is to Barca, just in terms of playing style, but he'd be a really good get for either of them. He's a big, big talent. Uh, Portugal legend Cristiano Ronaldo's 13-year-old son, Cristiano Jr., will join up with Al Nazir's under-15s after completing his transfer to the Saudi club on Thursday. Okay. We really needed, we, we needed to know that, that. That's really important information for us all to have. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is set to be offered a lucrative deal by Al Etifak, managed by Stephen Gerrard. Dominic Calvert-Lewin's personality... I don't think would play all that well in Saudi Arabia. I also don't think there's any possibility Al-Etifak could afford it. There's no way Everton are going to give him away. Liverpool gave Henderson away. They gave, Everton gave Damari Gray away. They're not signing someone that's going to cost, even with a year left, probably 35 million. 
Uh, Eric Ten Hag feels his relationship with Jaden Sancho is beyond repair and the club must look to try and offload the 23-year-old. Atletico Madrid want to secure Nahuel Molina on a long-term deal after he was linked to a host of top clubs, which is absolutely fair. They're a top club. He's a really good player. They should want to keep him. Manchester City will allow Calvin Phillips to leave the club in January. Everybody knows that. The Etihad club remain keen on a move for Lucas Paqueta, which is not a surprise. That gambling thing has gone a little bit quiet, though. David Moyes, whose contract with the Hammers runs out in the summer, is in no rush to open talks. And I don't think the club are in a rush to open talks either. I still maintain they should have replaced him in the summer, but but they have started very well. Uh, Napoli want to speak to Graham Potter about becoming the new manager. But Potter could be in contention at Manchester United if Eric Ten Hag is eased out. Now, I, I don't think Eric Ten Hag is going to be eased out. I think he'll get the season regardless. I also think that would be a dreadful job for Potter to walk into. West Ham is more the level of job Graham Potter should be looking at. Uh, Bayern Munich are tracking Trevor Chalaba, who's not part of Maurizio Pochettino's plans. Newcastle are ready to launch another bid for Juan Miranda of Real Betis with the 23-year-old tipped for a move to the Premier League. I don't think they need another left-back. Like You've got Dan Byrne. You've got Lewis Hull. You've got Matt Target. Really don't think you need Juan Miranda. He's a good player. Just don't think they need him. Crystal Palace would accept a £60 million bid from Manchester United for Mark Wehi. That's a fair price, given English tax. £40 million is a more realistic price, but English tax, that's fair enough. Uh, AC Milan are keen on Boca Juniors midfielder Ezekiel Fernandez, and the 21-year-old is also on the radar of Liverpool and Benfica. Benfica also had great success with the last E Fernandez that they signed directly from Argentina. So, yeah, that, that could be a player. Uh, Liverpool are believed to be considering a potential move for Jamal Musiala. We, we can dream, but it's very unlikely. Galatasaray's French right-back, Sasha Bowie, is still attracting interest from Arsenal, having been watched last summer. I don't understand why Arsenal are looking for the left-back, or another right-back, rather. You've got Ben White. You've got Tommy Asu. You've got Timber. You've played Partey there. I don't know why you'd want another right-back. You need a left-back. Left-back is the weakest spot in your team. Aston Villa are reportedly interested in Carlos Soler. He'd be a good signing for them. Arsenal, Newcastle, Tottenham and West Ham are all been linked to it. Javi Guerra. Aletifak are reportedly ready to offer... Jesse Lingard, a contract in January. Everybody knows that. This might, might as well just get that one done. Athletic Bilbao are set to offer Aston Villa target Nico Williams a new deal in a bid to keep the 21-year-old at the club. It would be catastrophic for them to lose him for free. He's a £50 million player. He's homegrown. It's all profit. He's going to be really hard to replace in the team. And obviously they're limited in, in who they can buy. But like for them to be sustainable, if they're losing their best talents, they have to be getting big fees. So if they lose them for nothing, that's going to be a major, major issue for them. Uh, finally, then, Monday's gossip. Arsenal are looking to sign Fluminense's midfielder, Andre, in the January transfer market. 
I, I think this is lazy journalism, to be totally honest. I don't think they're actually in for him. I think they're looking at two other players from Fluminense, and I don't think either of them are him. Uh, Man City are exploring a potential deal for Jamal Musiala, with Liverpool also long-term admirers. Lionel Messi is not considering any loan from now until the new MLS season starts in February, despite his links to Barcelona. Uh, thanks for that, Fabrizio. It's not like he already told us that himself. Chelsea are continuing to keep a watching brief on Victor Osman's ongoing status at Napoli, despite rumours of a move to Liverpool being agreed for the 24-year-old. Signing a central midfielder is a top priority for Newcastle manager Eddie Howe, with Sandro Tonali part of the betting, the investigation to legal betting. Fair enough. Uh, if it's Ruben Neves on loan, though, that will be a scandal that will need to be investigated. Uh, Liverpool have been scouting Gincalo and Ascio, yada yada. Liverpool, sorry, Arsenal are hoping to sell Thomas Partey. I wonder why. Why do you think they're trying to sell him? What might be the reason there? As well as Italy international Jorginho, as they attempt to bring in Andre again. I, I don't believe that that's the case, but you know it is Football Insider, so you know they have to make things up to just you know get their clicks. Uh, Luton will have to pay at least five point five million for nineteen-year-old Ecuadorian midfielder Oscar Zambrano. Seems like a fair price, to be fair. Uh, Bayern and Canada left back Alfonso Davies will cost at least forty million if Real Madrid want to sign him. I think it'll cost a little bit more than that, even with the one year left. Rangers would want offers of at least five million to sell Jack Butland, who they just signed for free a few months ago. But I, it, it's fair enough. Uh, former, sports, for, former Spurs defender Cameron Carter Vickers is in no rush to head back. To the Premier League with the American currently at Celtic continuing to generate transfer talk. I don't think he's a Premier League caliber defender. Personally, I like him at Celtic. I think he'd be a really good championship defender. I don't think he's a Premier League caliber defender. Uh, Belgian midfielder Kevin De Bruyne may not be offered a contract renewal at Man City if his injury record worsens. Uh, Peter Rock, spoofing of the highest caliber. Brazil side, Brazilian side Fluminense are preparing a move for Thiago Silva amid speculation that the 39-year-old will leave Stamford Bridge at the end of the season. Uh, watching him try and defend against Eddie Nketiah late in that game, it, he should probably just leave now. Yeah, he should probably just leave now. Right, folks, that's it. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.